Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. Back again from the banks of the beautiful rotten bayou. Looks like we dodged a couple of hurricanes this week and uh, it's like a monster storm's going into Texas, Louisiana area. Not not too far from here, but close enough that all we're seeing is some rain. Maybe a little rain and some wind. Maybe some outer bands. Uh, I sympathize with the people there. I'm going to be talking. This is episode 69. We're going to be talking today. About, first off, we're going to have a... a Another confession from Jesse Miskelly Jr. I know they keep coming, 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 but, um, you know, I, I feel obligated to at least mention them, mention each one of them and go through it a little bit. This one's pretty simple and short and not as official as some of the others, but it's, it's a confession. And uh, also, then after that, we're going to get into... The events of nine years ago when the West Memphis Three managed to wrangle a plea deal out of the state and, and get, got to walk after spending some 18 years or so in prison for killing three little boys. But we'll start off with, and this is from my book, Where the Monsters Go. Uh, it's the second volume of a two-volume set. The first volume is Blood on Black. There's a combined, condensed, revised version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Or all these books were available on Amazon in print format and in Kindle format. Kindle format's much more affordable. Print, you know, printing costs are... I guess I didn't realize how much, at least as far as it, when it gets to me, I don't know how, I don't know how much money they're making on their end. But when it gets to me, the after they take out the cost of printing, it's it's uh, you know it's not near it's not it looks like a nice little payday each book, but it's really not uh, because the printing costs are so high. So that's one reason the books are as expensive as they are. Personally, I'd prefer to sell them at a cheap, cheaper price, but I, I have to at least break even on the books. Uh, and I do a little better than that, but not much better. Kindle's a different story. Uh, we're going to start off with an incident from 1994. One of Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s cellmates in Arkansas prison and briefly state just for those who are dropping in for the first time we're talking about the West Memphis 3 case I do intend to get in some other cases eventually and I've done that a little bit but not very much I do intend to get into some other cases eventually uh, with a different sort of orientation than I see anybody else doing and maybe I'm just missing it but I don't see anybody else doing it and uh, my, the particular thing I'm interested in. And uh, 
this is a case from 1993. Very famous case, made famous by the Paradise Lost movies, West of Memphis. Uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. killed three little eight-year-olds, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch in West Memphis, Arkansas on May 5, 1993. They were arrested on June 3, 1993, and they were convicted in 1994. So Jesse had already done, he had already given a confession to the deputies taking him to prison. He'd done a confession with his hand on a bi his, the Bible to his defense attorney. He'd done another confession to prosecutors in the presence of his defense attorneys begging him not to give another confession. And we have transcripts and so forth from all those three confessions. And then there was another, yet another confession which I don't, I haven't been able to find a record of, but I'm sure it exists. Uh, with the prosecutor, that follow up, follow up confession to the prosecutors. Now, so that's four confessions after after he's convicted so far. This is the fifth a fifth confession. And one of Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s cellmates wrote a letter to the prosecuting attorney, Brent Davis, urging that Miskelly be kept behind bars. Not that there was really any chance he was going anywhere anytime soon. It's dated October 24th, 94. Mr. Brent Davis, I am forwarding this letter to you your office simply because you were the only prosecuting attorney that I was able to get the address of. After reading this, I hope you will bring it to the attention of the appropriate persons. I may have some useful information for the prosecution in the upcoming appeal of Jesse Miskelly, who, as you may know, is one of three defendants accused of murdering the three young boys in West Memphis. Brent Davis was very much aware who Jesse Miskelly Jr. was. I've known Miss Kelly since June 9th, 1994. We are currently housed together in the ADC Diagnostic Unit Special Programs Unit. On several different occasions, Miss Kelly and I have talked extensively about many facts of the case. Among them, Miss Kelly told me that they, the defendants, cut the testicles of one of the children off, that Jason Baldwin, one of the defendants, had sex with one of the children after he had been killed and that Damien Eccles, one of the defendants, said a prayer before they threw the boys in a ditch. Now, it's very interesting. I'm going to stop there. This, there's more in the letter, but, you know, uh, he, he's continuing to talk in prison, having extensive conversations with another inmate who, you know, admittedly might have his own motivations for getting in touch with the prosecuting attorney. Maybe he's hoping to get a special deal of some sort. I don't know. But uh, he describes Baldwin, Jason Baldwin, uh, having, having sex with one of the children after the child is dead, which is, do I need to say how sick that is? And it says something about Jason Baldwin. 
I believe he's perfectly capable of doing that. I don't think he has any form of conscience. It's also interesting that Damien Eccles is described as saying a prayer. Miss Kelly has not, in all his confessions, and it's interesting because supposedly the prosecution was going after uh, all three of them, even though it would be, you know, because they wore black t-shirts, uh, had funny haircuts, mullets, and uh, Eccles had kind of a goth cut, and uh, like Metallica. Well, really none of those three really applied to Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Jason Baldwin was a very generic, typical little teen as far as his dress style. The only one that did was really stood out was Muskelly with all his his uh, habit of wearing black clothes everywhere. And even then, he didn't do that exclusively. Uh, we we know he's had like a green striped shirt, and I think there's an NBA. I think he's got a black T-shirt that's got got the NBA on it. I mean, that's how edgy the black T-shirts were. Uh, but Miss Kelly is not. He he described satanic rituals that he participated in, and he described the killings. But for all the that the prosecutors and the prosecutors were trying to prosecute these boys on the basis of an occult killing and that the police had this so-called obsession with occult crimes and and also were supposedly just feeding Jesse Miskelly all this information. There's little to nothing, I would say nothing, as far as explicit religious, spiritual, magical actions ascribed to Damien Eccles or Jason Baldwin or Jesse Miskelly Jr. in any of Miskelly's confessions at the crime scene except for this where he says Damien Eccles said a prayer before the boys they threw the boys in a ditch. Now I'll leave it up to you to decide who he said a prayer to but I don't think he was getting right with Jesus at the time, if you know what I mean. Uh, getting back to the letter. Miskelly also told me that they, the defendants, left a nightgown at the scene so that it would look like women had committed the crime. He says now he is trying to blame the parents of one of the children. Ms. Kelly also told me that his confession is the only evidence that the prosecution has and that he and his attorney are trying to have that dismissed. I once asked Ms. Kelly what were the names of the three boys. He laughed for some time and then said he could only remember one of them. Mr. Davis, please do everything in your power to keep Ms. Kelly behind bars for the rest of his life. He is a very cold, morbid person. I thank you for your time. And it's signed Michael Johnson. Now, the letter hits, letter helps clear up one of the primary criticisms of the Miskelly Confessions. 
that he couldn't keep the names and descriptions of Chris Myers and Stevie Branch straight. The explanation is that he just couldn't keep the identity straight, but he, he found it humorous. And, you know, he, he had so little regard for these children, and I do think he felt guilty about participating in the killings, but as far as regarding him as individuals, he had so little regard for that that he, he, uh, he couldn't keep two of the boys' names straight. And it was a problem. Not, not consistently. He was very inconsistent with it, but it, it was a problem. Uh, the description of Eccles saying a prayer before dumping the children into the water supports the theory that Eccles was acting out a long-held homicidal fantasy justified as a religious observance. I, I hold to that particular theory. Crime experts have noted that psychopathic killers, unlike other murderers, often have a pseudo-philosophical or religious rationale to wrap around their crimes. And as for little Jesse, he just couldn't stop talking. Now, we're going to jump ahead a number of years, quite a few years. Uh, to 2011. Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly Jr. in the summer of 2011, they were positioned to possibly overturn the jury convictions. Now, I have to say, unlike uh, Marl Everett, I really wasn't interested in all the little defense maneuvers that they were pulling with the various appeals courts and everything. Uh, and describing at great length, they did this and they did that, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, frankly, it's all just defense lawyer maneuvering. It's their job. I'm not criticizing them. They're just doing what they do. But it really does. It has very little to do with who actually committed the murders, which is what I'm concerned with. I realize legalities are a necessity, but to me, it, it, focusing on legal minutiae and, and uh, uh, a case like this has a way of missing the big picture, and which is what a lot of supporters do, and frankly, maybe a lot of people who think they're guilty do the same thing. You know, I mean, just because they were found guilty doesn't mean they actually committed the crimes necessarily. I mean, there are people who pronounce guilty. It turns out they didn't do it. That's not in the case in this case, but it does happen. And just because they did a plea bargain and they, they, I will readily concede, people make plea bargains because it seems it's the easy way out. And that is what was happening with the Alfred plea. And we'll get into that and I'll, I'll get into it a little deeper. And I, ha I have a better, I've thought through this more since I wrote this. I have a better understanding. And some things have happened, not a whole lot, but some things have happened since then. Uh, or more to the point, things haven't happened. We haven't seen any new evidence uh, since 2011 from the defense. Anyway, uh, thanks largely to media coverage and a huge influx of money from celebrities and other supporters, the attempts to free the West Memphis Three yielded an order, yielded an order from the Arkansas Supreme Court for a hearing 
on whether new analysis of DNA evidence might weigh upon the case. It was also in order to examine claims of jury misconduct. Evidentiary hearings were pending with the potential for new trials and even exoneration. And this was all coming up in December of 2011. The plea deal for the West Memphis Three grew out of a lunch meeting of West Memphis Three defense attorney Patrick Binka and his old law school classmate, State Attorney General Dustin McDaniels. McDaniel, not Daniels. Uh, since I wrote this, uh, it's worth noting that Patrick Binka and Dustin McDaniel are now partners in the same law firm. That's how cozy their relationship it, it was and is. Uh, I'll say briefly that Dustin McDaniel, and I may get into this later in the chapter, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now in case I didn't. Uh, Dustin McDaniel at that time was, you know, he seemed to be an up-and-coming political star. Uh, maybe, you know, potential for gubernatorial uh, run or something like that and then he was he got involved in a huge scandal and uh, basically went left public office but he's he's practicing he's practicing law and I'm certain cer certain he's doing well and who knows maybe he's just biding his time and hoping for that you know, maybe his he'll ha, he'll have a bid for power again someday. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but it's possible. Uh, as the possibility of new trials loomed in the summer of 2011, Binka pitched McDaniel the idea of skipping the evidentiary hearing and going straight to new trials. Talk grew to include the possibility of the killers walking free in exchange for a guilty plea saving the state time, money, and potential embarrassment. McDaniel, who had larger political ambitions before a subsequent sex scandal destroyed his campaign for governor, was interested in resolving the complex legal matters, hoping to avoid a potential public relations nightmare. A meeting was promptly set up between the defense team and the prosecuting attorney who's based in Jonesboro, uh, Scott Ellington. Uh, they agreed on using, they ultimately agreed on using the Alford plea. The Alford plea allowed the killers to maintain they were innocent while conceding that the state had sufficient evidence perhaps to convict them again. On that basis, all three pleaded guilty. Now, there are not many convicts facing a life term or the death penalty who would not take a similar bargain. Dustin McDaniel, in a typical bit of Arkansas-style triangulation, stood behind both his office's seemingly hardline prosecutorial bent, insisting on their guilt, insisting that they were not going, they weren't going to just be able to walk uh, without pleading guilty, etc. He took the line between, he, he stood behind that, but he also stood firmly behind the prosecuting attorney, Scott Ellington's la-di-da attitude toward release, releasing three child killers. In a masterful bit of misdirection, McDaniel told the media, 
Since the day of their original convictions, the Attorney General's office has been committed to defending the guilty verdicts in this case. I continue to believe that these defendants are guilty of the crimes for which they have now been twice convicted. Uh, Ellington, on his part, made it clear that he took the deal because he was concerned that the convictions could be overturned on such narrow legal matters as the allegations of just jury misconduct, which were unproved. And we don't know that that would have resulted in a new trial. We don't know how the court, we don't know what would have happened when they got to court. Uh, and with, and, but if the convictions were overturned, there was a new trial, the state would be left open to the potential for multi-million dollar lawsuits if the men were exonerated in new trials. Uh, the release was contingent on the basis of the state being immune to such lawsuits. And they bandied about the figure of, oh, I think Ellington came up with a figure of $60 million, which sounds pretty impressive. But the fact is, it's a civil lawsuit with the evidence they had against them, including um, the Muskelly confessions and so forth. I don't really see them. I don't see them prevailing, and if they did, I don't see them getting a huge settlement. They're not. They have presented no exonerating evidence. They had none then. They have none now. There's no prospects of them having exonerating evidence. There, there are no prospects of evidence pointing without fail to somebody else as the as the killer if it was going to happen it would have happened already Ellington was new to the office he had little familiarity with the case and much like McDaniel he had no dog in the fight he really didn't get I mean you know he'd prefer they stay there out of his hair but the truth is he got phone, one of his biggest problems was all the phone calls and emails and publicity he would get about the West Memphis Three. They were a, a pain, in the, pain in the ass, to, to put it mildly. And like McDaniel, Ellington aspired to higher office the two Democrats shared a political base in the medium-sized East Arkansas town of Jonesboro. <coughs> Overall, Ellington saw the release as a smart move. Ellington has said his office received many communications from defenders of the killers, but no information indicating the state convicted the wrong men. In other words, they got a lot of complaints. Oh, these boys are innocent, but... Nobody was actually coming forward with any evidence that they were innocent. Uh, the release on August 19th, a week ago, nine years, came as a skillfully managed media event designed for maximum news coverage. In their familiar roles as victims of an unfair justice system, the killers held a press conference that put the case before a national audience once again. Steve Branch, the father of Stevie Branch, as he had almost 18 years earlier, protested in the courtroom and was actually evicted from the court. 
as he was being removed from the courtroom, once again, he made one final plea to Judge David Laser. Your Honor, if you go through with this, you're going to open Pandora's box. You're wrong, Your Honor. You can stop this right now before you do it. But once again, the plea of a grieving parent was ignored. Malwin, Eccles, and Miss Kelly were sentenced to time served, followed by a 10-year term of suspension of sentence. If they committed serious crimes during that time, they would be subject to a 21-year prison term. While certain conditions were set down concerning their conduct upon release, the three had no constraints on travel and no requirement to report to a parole officer or similar overseeing authority. According to Ellington, as long as they did not get into legal trouble, they were free to do as they pleased. Some months after their release, Ellington even expressed to me, and I was calling him about, a, uh, calling him about some apparent parole violations that uh, Eccles had committed, and he just basically just waved them away as not important. Ellington even expressed a grudging admiration for Eccles' ability to exploit his notoriety. There was no outrage from the prosecuting attorney, though many in Crittenden County were outraged at the strange turn of events that turned the area's most notorious killer into a celebrity. Ellington's political ambitions had taken precedent over any concerns about setting the killers free, uh, he was chagrined to find he was not a popular man in Crittenden County after the release. I mean, I, reporters, I, I got a bit of it, and I, reporters got a bit of but the reporters I had there got a bit of it, where he, he was complaining that he was not popular in, in uh, Crittenden County. He was unhappy with the criticism he got over this. What a baby. Anyway, but his power base in Jonesboro was not heavily damaged. Uh, nonetheless, a subsequent run for Congress was unsuccessful. Since then, he's run again for prosecuting attorney, and he's been reelected. And recently, he ran for a judicial post that was opening up, and he will be leaving the prosecuting attorney's office at the end of the year, there's some sort of transitional period that, where they're, they're, that's going on with this, but he's leaving, as my understanding, he's leaving the prosecuting attorney's office at the end of the year, and he's going to be moving into this role as a judge starting next year. Um, that pretty much wraps up uh, what I had in the book. I will say briefly that um, many of you were following the Bob Ruff uh, debacle, and you know he 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 made a big deal about he was going to put Ellington's feet to the fire and make him do new DNA testing. Uh, he has no standing to do that. The case is closed. There's, there's, there's really no. I'm sure a really, really, you know, there's some genius attorneys who were involved in this. There might be a genius attorney who could somehow go to court and somehow talk the courts into ordering again 
DNA testing. Maybe they could do that. Be expensive, a lot of trouble, very very time very time consuming. But using new technology, maybe maybe a, a great attorney, one of the great attorneys, great defense attorney, could uh, pull that off. But Bob Ruff's not going to do it, and Scott Ellington is not going to do it just because Bob Ruff wants him to. And Scott Ellington's not going to do it just because a bunch of supporters sent in emails and sent letters and, and uh, faxed his office or whatever. And, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I would suspect that that's died down. I'm sure they had quite a flurry of uh, uh, communications going on for a while, but it's died down. I don't follow Ruff's podcast except when I feel obligated to the West Memphis Three. So maybe he mentions that from time to time. I don't know. I really don't care. But um, he's not going to get anywhere with it. There will be a new prosecuting attorney next year. Uh, we don't know who it's going to be at this point. And, you know, maybe maybe that guy will say, oh, yeah, I'll do all this. Frankly, if they're going to do it, let them test every. Don't don't do it halfway. Test everything. See what results we get. Test that semen stain that was on Stevie Branch's pants. That you know Stevie, an eight-year-old boy, did not leave on his own pants. That Damian Knuckles left when he wiped his penis off after masturbating over the butt boy's body. Let's test that. Let's test the if, if there's any way to get anything from the blood the blood pendant. If there's any remnant of blood there with the two samples of blood on a pendant that Eccles was wearing when he was arrested. How did two different blood sources get on one pendant except at a crime scene? Test that. You know, I'd be I would be very happy to to get DNA confirmation that these little thugs were indeed the killers. And if it turns out that it's <laughs> by some wild, it turns out they were the absolute unluckiest little ki- little teenagers in the whole world, like all these other Longville conviction guys that just are so, so unlucky, you know? OJ, very unlucky guy. Anyway, uh... You know, if it turned out it was some somebody else, I, I could live with that. I mean, it's not gonna—that's not gonna be the result. But you know, I could live with that. I'll—I'll I'll apologize for. I'll say, oh, I spent all that time and energy and so forth on uh, something, that it turns out I was wrong. It's not the first time I was wrong, but based on the information that I have so far, I think I'm right. And as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to be right on this issue until I'm proven wrong. And at this point, I'm never going to be proven wrong. Anyway, that's enough from a case the case against. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay home if you need to. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.